Welcome to Cambridge Stronger, where culture counts and values matter most. I'm your host, Amy Weber, and joining us today is Christopher Raup, President and CEO of Ascend Wealth Consulting. Thanks for joining me, Chris. Thank you for having me. My all-time favorite part of my podcasts are at the beginning and at the end. And so I'm super excited to kick it off with you today by asking you to share with our listeners what your journey into financial services was like. Well, it's a little unique. I certainly didn't uh, you know, go to college and think I was going to become a financial advisor. I actually went through Army ROTC and had planned to basically make a career out of being an Army officer. And I was in the Army at their early years where budget cuts decided that we only needed a force of uh, about half of the previous size. So after my initial two years of indoctrination training as an Army officer, I was um, summarily told that I was welcome to go ahead and rotate back to the Pennsylvania National Guard, that the active Army didn't really need me anymore. So it happened to so many of us, and it was really funny because a lot of people who wanted to go into the National Guard didn't get that option, and those of us that wanted to stay on active duty didn't get that option. So so I uh, became a project manager for Pennsylvania Blue Shield and eventually rotated over to an opportunity with electronic data systems under Ross Perot in his last couple of years there. And uh, really did not find a home in corporate America. Uh, I found that my entrepreneurial spirit wasn't really uh, jiving real well with management's uh, directives and what I should be doing and how I should be doing it. And of course, the Army had taught me a lot of um, independence that I didn't really feel that I got to explore in corporate America. So I took an opportunity to go become a professor in military science at Dickinson College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, as a uh, defense contractor. And I absolutely loved that assignment. And I did that for three years. And while I was doing that, I had some spare time in my summers and was looking for a career option after that was going to end, knowing that it was only a three-year assignment. And at the same time, my parents went to a financial advisor in the area. And my dad called me over and said, hey, I'd really like you to review uh, what this guy has recommended for us. And I said, I think I'm going to go see him myself and talk to him about what he's recommended. And I was with that guy for uh, two hours and I walked out convinced that's what I wanted to do for a career. And uh, that's really how it happened um, by accident. And uh, after spending two hours with this gentleman who um, helped me get my licenses and get into the career, um, that's, that's how I became a financial advisor. But I've been independent from day one which has been absolutely fantastic and a great way for me to um, explore my entrepreneurial spirit and, you know, sort of make the decisions and learn the lessons the hard way. So I have a few follow-up questions, if you don't mind. First of all, this is more of a comment than a question, but I'm fascinated by the, what I just heard you say about the Army part of your life was that effectively you were laid off. And I don't think anyone that I know anyway, knows that that could ever happen. Like that must be one of the best kept secrets in the military 
culture. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. <laughs> uh, mandatory retirements, mandatory reduct force reductions. There's a lot of things that happen behind the scenes that don't get any play in the media for sure. Um, you know, it's it's not something that uh, we as a nation like to advertise that we've just reduced our force by 50%. Yeah. Right. <laughs> fascinating fascinating so closer to financial services though so can you express in any more detail exactly what that financial professional did or said or like two hours isn't really it sounds like a really long time to be with a financial professional probably to some people but it's not that long for somebody to be able to inspire a career in an individual so what was it and was that person independent or was that person some other type no, he was, he was an independent, but he introduced me to the concept of being able to reduce lifetime taxes. And I found that really appealing and it really resonated with me that, you know, over the course of our lifetime, we were transferring a, a ton of wealth away unknowingly and unwillingly by just not really understanding the tax code and all the opportunities within the tax code. And even though they close loopholes every year, new loopholes open. And, um, you know, I shouldn't even refer to them as loopholes. They are specifically in the tax code to benefit somebody. And I think it's just understanding. I walked out of that meeting with an understanding that knowledge was power. And knowledge could also put a lot more um, income and savings back into my pocket and the people that I affected the rest of my life. And I think one of the most amazing things that I learned that day is it's not what you earn, it's what you keep. And, you know, I think it's a message that I continue to use to this day with my clients. I just said it this morning to a client, you know, it's not, it's not how much we get in return. It's what you have at the end of the day and what you're able to transfer away to your daughters. That's that's much more powerful. Isn't it amazing how many people actually don't know? I mean, it, it, to those of us that have been doing this um, business for a long time, especially on the independent side, kind of sounds like a no-brainer, right? A lot of the advice you're giving but isn't typical for people to completely understand it the way that you just described it. That was really good. A second follow-up question to that. Do you work from a generational financial literacy standpoint with the children of your clients because I just came from a conversation recently about the especially I mean it's always been the case I don't feel like colleges and high schools actually do a great job if any job at all in educating <laughs> young people but it's up to financial professionals sometimes I guess or parents yeah. to try to the basics right budgeting and yeah. some of the principles you just described do you spend any time doing that with the clients or the children of your clients I try um, I, I agree with you, Amy. I think it's a travesty that we send our children in this country through, you know, 12 years of school and then undergraduate and even graduate degrees and even PhDs and people walk out and have no idea how money works. You know, they have, they have no idea. Um, there is, and I know teachers who want to teach it who can't get it approved in their curriculums. And it is just puzzling to me how we can put people through business school and never teach them how to balance their checkbook. But, <laughs> you know, and 
So yeah, absolutely. It's a passion of mine. I offer it to all of my clients. I have some clients who I have, you know, 12 year olds that um, their grandfather has purchased uh, stocks for them. And then I actually meet with the 12 year olds and the grandfather once a year. And we have a discussion about, do we buy more? Do we look at a different holding? How do we know how it's performing well, whether or not it's, you know, whether or not the analysts are giving us a good write-up on it. It's really interesting conversation. And, you know, it's not designed to make them a want to be a stock investor. It's designed to educate them on the, the market and how the market works. And it's just a basic level of knowledge. But I also have a, a number of trusts that I manage um, the funds for where I'm working with younger um, beneficiaries of that trust. And one of them is 18 years old and he just lost his mother last year. And, you know, it's, it's a challenge to guide him on what to do with seven figures of money that's coming through, you know? Yeah. So. Absolutely. Well, I love the story about the grandfather. That's a, maybe we can try to hopefully a whole bunch of people listen to this podcast and get an idea um, about <laughs> how that can work because, you know, the, the chairman of our company, you may have interacted with Eric Schwartz, but for our listeners, yeah. You know, he was playing around with stocks when he was about that same age. And, you know, he's done all right for himself figuring out how to, he does yep. know, he does know how, um, what happens with money and how to handle it. So, yeah, Good. he told me that story at breakfast this past year. It's awesome. Well, you founded Paladin Financial Services in 1998, I believe. It's been rebranded now to Ascend Wealth Consulting. And you also transitioned from a brick and mortar office to remote work sites and virtual interactions with your clients. How did you arrive at that decision? And how, talk about the transition. How did you make it? Well, we were actually looking at this and starting this process prior to COVID. And it's probably, I mean, there's a lot of advisors now because of COVID that are doing this. But we had started the process beforehand. I just really was looking at the economics of the situation. We had 3,200 square foot office, um, multiple staff that weren't all client facing. Uh, for a long time, I, you know, I was working with a business coach who told me I needed this and told me I needed that. And really, ultimately, what I discovered was I didn't need any of that. <laughs> and the, the, I think the, the final decision point for me was when I actually sat down and did an analysis of how many clients had been in our office in the previous 12 months. And the number was less than 20. And I said, this is ridiculous. It's costing me $70,000 just to turn the lights on every year to have to run 20 appointments. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like, I would be better off to buy a sub shop and run the appointments out of a sub shop, right? <laughs> than I would be to do this. So um, I just decided to eliminate all my client non-client facing staff to use technology where possible and if necessary, virtual assistance if needed uh, to round that out, which we did a little bit of while we were making the transition, but we eventually just refined everything down to what was really important to our clients what was really important for us to do business and try to eliminate all the noise. And by eliminating the noise, we were able to really streamline operations and streamline staff, eliminate the office building, sell the office building before COVID, 
which was a really awesome thing because I probably got a, you know an extra 20% for the office because of it. And um, it was really just a great opportunity to do that. And one of the interesting things, Amy, is that before doing it, I asked my clients what their thought was on it. And almost every single one of my clients, I can't think actually think of a single client who said, I don't like that idea at all. Every one of them said to me, Chris, we're with you because of you. It's our relationship with you. It's not our relationship with your staff. It's not our relationship with your office. It's not your location of your office. Yeah, we might stop and see you on the way to having dinner, but that's only because we already had the appointment with you. But we can just as easily do the appointment via Zoom, or if it's really, really important, you'll come to our house. And all of my clients know that. If it is really important, I will get on a plane and come and see you. So it's one of the big fears of advisors, I think, when they're thinking this through, even, you know, depending on what state they lived in, there's certain states that, you know, they never really stopped meeting with their clients in person to begin with. But um, the fear is if they get on this bandwagon of moving virtually, that they will lose those clients. So out of the 20 or so clients that were still coming into your office, I, I guess I want the, what I think I heard, I want the audience to hear as well, um, loud and clear, is the 20 are still with you and they converted with you. They are also virtual, knowing, to your point, there's always the exception to the day when you do have to get together with them face-to-face, but there's another option than an office. Yeah, all of those 20 are still with me. As a matter of fact, all of those 20 have actually referred clients to me since making the transition. And I actually feel like the referral was easier for them because of the virtual environment. Um, I do have a couple of those clients that I go see on a regular basis, but that's because they're in their upper 70s or 80s. And that's just honestly, because it's it's fun for me to go see them at their house and they make me a cup of tea and we sit at the dining room table and, you know, like most financial advisor meetings, um, I'm there for an hour and we talk about their money for 15 minutes, <laughs> you know? So it's for me, it's really always been about the relationships much more than all the other stuff. Which is what makes it fun, right? Your website also, another unique thing I find about you and and your business is that your website talks a lot about providing services to everyone that everyone can benefit from. You've got low account minimums and no initial consulting fee. Not a lot of advisors can find their way to that either. And I think it's probably a generational thing, my personal opinion, where it will start to evolve more. But why were those factors important to you when you established the foundation of your business and How do you think that impacts the recruitment of new clients? Well, the dirty secret is I have no account minimum. (laughs) And um, I'll tell you exactly where that came from. My grandfather was a minister. And I watched my grandfather growing up uh, serve his parishioners and the people in the community, regardless of how much money they had, how much money they could give to the church, whether or not they were even a parishioner of his church. He always taught me that whatever you do, if you do what's right for people, it will, it will, you know, pay you back in the future. You'll reap the rewards in the future. And, you know, I I migrated back and forth over 23 years in this business. There were times when business coaches told me I was wasting money and not being 
profitable by bringing on clients that had less than six figures in their portfolios. And I watched also at the same time, the reduction of the number of referrals and business growth that we had during those time periods. So being, you know, born and raised in rural Pennsylvania, I don't, and I didn't come from money. So I think it's important to open our doors to everybody. Every American citizen, in my opinion, deserves the right to good financial counsel. And I don't feel that we're doing a service to anybody, including ourselves, to push them away or carve them out from our business offerings. Ultimately, it's really surprising how much I learned from them. You know, I mean, they have unique challenges that I don't come across on a daily basis. And every, you know, understanding to them the impact of an increase in their social security and a decrease in their cost of Medicare Part A is an interesting conversation I'm not going to have with most of my clients. But for some of my clients, that's really a big deal. It's a really, it's a game changer for them, right? So I think it's really powerful to, to have a diverse client base, um, not just in ethnicity or religion or anything else, but also in size of portfolio and what their goals are. I was listening to a presentation a couple of days ago. So, you know, the, the general opinion, it's never a hundred percent of anything, but um, is that things like subscription-based pricing for financial planning services is something that only the lower end of the market will ever embrace. But I was listening to a lot of statistics and um, this particular presenter had gone out and done a bunch of surveys and even the high net worth clients that many advisors across the country are working with now are demanding, as the word they used, um, a different type of pricing model, very much like the typical subscription model that people think of when they think of the lower end of the market. Um, so it's interesting how things certainly there's demand for the upstream to be available to the downstream, but it does can't it does work the opposite sometimes. Let's go back to speaking about clients. What do you look for in a potential client? Are there any types of attributes or characteristics um, or core values that a client needs to have for you to service them? How do you figure out who you want to work with? Have you ever had to tell someone you didn't want to work with them? Yeah, I'm doing it a lot now. That means you've made it. Yeah. I know. Sign of maturity, right? Yes. <laughs> um, I heard a statistic the other day that I find really interesting. Professional poker players fold more than half the time, where the average poker player stays in 80% of the time. So the sign of maturity in poker anyways, is recognizing the fact that um, when to stay in not not to just you know keep playing hands and hope right and i think um it's a really interesting analogy to what we do in working with our clients because what what do i look for in my clients i look for clients that i would want to be a friend with it's actually that's pretty simple right um but I've really refined my goals moving forward in that I'm looking for clients who want to be outdoors, who want to do the things that I like to do so that 
maybe our our next meeting face to face might be on a ski slope or on a trail run or having a cup of coffee or a nice cold beer at a microbrew as opposed to um you know i don't as i said earlier i don't look for clients of high net worth i don't i don't target in that direction i don't even like to have too many clients from one company or things like that i mean you know there's i've got a friend that is in Manhattan and all of his clients are on one floor of one building working for one company. And frankly, I would find that extremely boring. Um, I don't even know what they talk about outside of money. Right. <laughs> so maybe I nothing. Think it's, yeah, maybe nothing. Right. Um, so I think when, when you, when you really drill it down, what I'm looking for is diverse experiences and people who are very much like myself that I can truly resonate with and um, have deep, meaningful conversations and coach and inspire. And those are the characteristics I'm looking for. So it's, and I, I'll tell you, it's very difficult to market to, right? So I find them through personal observation. That's the way I absolutely find most of my clients or obviously through referrals. So. Sounds like a successful approach to business to me, a goal for all of us to aspire to, but you're mm. right. It does probably take maturity in some ways, not necessarily age, but years of um, realizing that, and I feel the same way. I'd, um, you want happy clients that you feel good about, that you can have a relationship with and not feel like you're in a battle every time. So. Yeah, I, I mean, one final note on that. I think what's really important to me is that I can have a discussion with that is difficult, right? And because I'm not looking for clients who are yes clients. I really want a client who's willing to challenge the status quo and who will be willing to have the difficult conversations that many clients just don't want to have. And when I have those relationships and I don't feel like the relationship is progressing, I suggest they go find another option. That's great. Thank you for sharing. We talked earlier about your military career in the Pennsylvania Army National Guard as well, over 20 years of service, a field artillery fire support officer, Iraq war combat veteran, several, I understand, multiple overseas assignments. So thank you for your service. I'm always fascinated when I talk to our veterans about the lessons that they learn from their time in the military and how often they transcend to running a business. So. What's one skill, if you can think of it, or multiples, if you have them, that you still use every day in your role as president and CEO of your own business that you learned back then? Well, I think the biggest thing that I learned is that if you're not challenging yourself and you're not failing, then you're not truly testing yourself. And, um, you know, I think it's really important to push yourself and your staff and your team and your clients to a point where something isn't always perfect because that's when you know that you're truly growing. That's what I learned in the military. It's instilled in every military officer and NCO. And um, it is just something that I think is really valuable and <clears throat> something that I internalized and bring into this world. Another thing that I think is really valuable is my ability to manage conflict. 
And I think that's really the biggest lesson that I got as an army officer and my leader, all my leadership training and all the schools that I went through and all the experiences that I was and and especially in combat is learning to manage stressful situations and manage conflict. And one of the techniques that I teach to the people that I coach and work with is to step back and take a big view. You need to have a panoramic view of what's happening. You can't be focused on the problem. In the military, we would use the phrase, if you're staring down your barrel, if you're looking through your sights, your vision becomes very narrow and focused and time compresses. And it's things happen around you and you don't even see them coming. And the biggest thing is to step back, get a big picture of it, do a reality check. We have a battle, I have a battle drill that I go through that basically says, how am I going to manage this conflict? And the first thing is I'm going to assess it. I'm going to seek to understand it. I'm going to um, weigh out the pros and cons. I'm going to develop courses of action and alternative courses of action. And then I'm going to decide and I'm going to deliver that decision confidently. And maybe it was the wrong decision. And maybe I learned really quickly that was the wrong decision. And then I step back and start the whole battle drill again. Right. And it's the exact same way that you um, do an offensive front in the military or even a defense of your you know, battle position in the military. It's the exact same thing. And the last thing is really just understanding that the um, neuroscience behind just taking a deep breath. And uh, a phrase that my dad taught me was ride the bull. Okay. And if you know anything about bull riding, the goal is to be on the bull for seven seconds. So just ride the bull for seven seconds and give yourself the opportunity to take it all in, reset. And it's, those are three things that I think I learned from the military that I use every day. And, um, you know, they were ingrained in us as young lieutenants. So the self-reflection that you just went through is, is really impressive. Um, and it reminded me of something you mentioned earlier. So listening to you talk about challenging yourself, making mistakes, I correlated it. You didn't use these words to, um, taking risks, right. Getting comfortable, taking risks, you mentioned that you've used a business coach in your 23 years in the business. When was the first time that it felt like, I think a lot of people don't, until I'm successful at a certain level, I can't afford to, is that the best use of my resources? What's the payoff? How do I determine if it pays off? And, and you know, the excuses can go on and on and on again about why one would not invest in a personal coach. But when did you decide that a personal business coach was going to be helpful for you? And did they, what kind of value do they, do they provide? Um, I think it was probably about 10 years into my career when I just sort of decided that I probably didn't have all the answers. <laughs> and the way that I did it initially was I engaged people that I considered as mentors who weren't truly mentors, but they didn't maybe know they were mentoring me. Um, but I went to them and said, look, you know, you clearly have this figured out better than I do, at least. Um, I'd really love to work with you a lot closer. And, you know, I've, I've done it 
a number of ways from just paying them as a coach, from splitting business with them when we were with the same broker dealer or life insurance carrier to, but I've also had relationships where there was in essence, no quid pro quo because they felt they, they were learning by teaching. And um, so I, I used that for a while. I had formal business coaches. I didn't feel like some of my formal business coaches really understood who I was and what I was trying to get at. And um, so sometimes we were at odds, but I can't say that I didn't learn anything from them. I certainly did. And I think it takes a while to identify who the right person is. I think ultimately, Amy, the biggest success I had was when I engaged a personal coach, not a business coach. I really didn't need somebody telling me what to do with my staff or how to manage my processes or workflows. What I really needed was somebody to teach me how to manage me. And it was about that time after doing that for a couple of years, I, I developed this term that I use to this day um, called personal leadership. And I don't think that that's an area that we spend any time on. You know, in college, you might take your philosophy course or your psychology course, but there's no real discussion about personal leadership skills. And the whole thing about personal leadership skills for me is there are no excuses. There are, I am not a victim of anything. I have the freedom to choose the way I'm going to live my life, the way I'm going to run my business, and only I can control that. And once I learned that, I became so passionate about it that I don't know if you saw in my bio that I... I went to Brown University and got certified as a leadership and performance coach. And now I spend about a third of my week coaching others in how to do what I learned to do. And many of them are financial advisors. So it's really become a passion for me. It's, um, I think, an amazing thing that's happening. And it's, I just heard a statistic this morning in listening to a, a podcast about leadership and coaching. And that is that um, uh, probably 15 years ago, if you asked the average college student or recent grad about therapy or coaching, less than 10% would think that that was something that they would in try or explore in their life. And today, 15 years later, that's almost 90%. So I think that what we're finding in our country anyway is, and I don't know if it's around the world, but I do believe that it probably is, is that personal growth and learning to manage yourself and lead yourself is a valuable trait that can apply no matter what business you're in. And certainly in a business like ours, where we are coaching and leading our clients, you know, I think every one of my clients comes to me more for leadership than they do for whether or not they should be putting money into the Roth or their traditional IRA. They're not really looking for that answer. They can find that answer on the internet. The reason they're hiring me is because they're looking for leadership in their financial world. And then it, because of my new certifications and the way I approach my clients now, it floods over into their personal life as well and their professional life and how to find a new job and how to change their careers and maybe just retire five years earlier. Those aren't easy things for people to admit, especially people in our business. So thank you for being a little vulnerable there and for your transparency. I think our listeners should benefit significantly if they even give 
a little bit of merit to what you just advised was a big part of your success. So thank you. You also, you're obviously sharing with us today some passions and places where you're heavily involved with your community. Um, I also understand you serve as a volunteer on the National Ski Patrol. You mentioned skiing earlier, so you're a member of the Professional Ski Instructors of America and the founder of the Wounded Warrior Patrol. So tell us about that. Tell us about Wounded Warrior Patrol. So um, it's no secret, and it took me a while to come to terms with the fact that it um, with this, but I came home from Iraq with some pretty significant PTSD, uh, which we now refer to as a psychological injury of um, combat, exposure to combat and the stresses of combat. And it was very difficult for me. I made this rotation from being in Ramadi, Iraq in the middle of the surge of 2006 to sitting in my living room in 72 hours. I had none of my friends around me, none of my combat buddies, and I was supposed to just migrate back into society as in, you know, no big deal. And I can tell you that that didn't work well for me. Um, There were a lot of challenges and I thought I was doing pretty well with it for actually about 18 months. And then one day, my dad actually called me out on it. He walked into my office. He was working for me part-time. And he walked into my office and said, I just want to ask you a question. If you don't want to answer the question, it's okay. I said, what's the, what's the question, dad? He said, when are you coming home? And it floored me. It floored me. I had no idea. I truly thought I was pulling the wool over everybody's eyes. And... Um, just trying to put on a smile and get through the day, right? And uh, it woke me up. And I started going through some counseling, which I didn't find overly helpful because I had recent college grads or, you know, master's degree students who were giving us counseling. That's who the VA hired to do our counseling at the time. And um They had never been to combat. They had no understanding of combat and they were giving me solutions that I thought were ludicrous. So I decided there had to be a better way. And I did some research and learned about some organizations that were doing this thing called recreational therapy for combat veterans. And I talked to a couple of my buddies who were combat veterans from Vietnam and, um, one even from Korea, believe it or not. (laughs) And uh, we sort of, and they were on ski patrol with me and we decided that we could create our own um, program. So we did. Wounded Warrior Patrol is now, this will be our 10th event this coming year. And what we do is we provide a week of all expenses paid, um, intro to skiing and snowboarding for the wounded warrior and their family. We bring their whole family as well, because we think what's really important for them is that whole family unit, being able to bond, be away from the stresses of home and exploring something new together. And I got to tell you, you want to see something amazing. You watch a five-year-old watch their dad, who's a double amputee, learn how to ski. And that, and they, you know, in their lifetime, they've never seen their dad um, attempt anything like that. 
And it's a really amazing experience. But we deal not just with physical injuries, but psychological injuries. And there is no counseling. There's no therapy. It is a week of challenging yourself and learning a new skill and being outdoors and getting the therapeutic experience of the combination of all those things. That's what we do. So it's a really powerful thing that um, I'm really proud of having created. We've served over 300 wounded warriors to, to date. And um, we have an all-volunteer board and all-volunteer staff. 100% of every dollar we've ever raised has gone to wounded warriors. So you should be proud. That is a really amazing story. I'm personally no more equipped maybe than those college graduates at commenting or judging anything that you just said other than know that I have goosebumps and I know it's special and it's a good thing. And that's pretty amazing. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you, Amy. You're also, you're a busy guy for yeah. sure as I continue to learn more about you, but you're an ultra runner and an endurance coach. I'm not sure when you sleep, but let's talk about this. You recently <laughs> completed a 240 mile race around the desert and the mountains of Moab, Utah. Why would one do that? And uh, talk about the actual race experience and how that correlates to everything that you do. Sure, uh, it's why, that's that's a tough one to explain, but I, I will say this to you and, and try to drill it down very, very concisely. Um, what we do for our wounded warriors at that week um, happens for me every single day on my trail runs. There's actually a lot of research being done right now about neuroscience and all these transmitters in our brains and how they all function. But this, uh, this one thing that I know works for me, it's called optic flow. And what that is, is when you're moving forward, the things that go by on the side, it's not what you're focused on up front. It's what goes by on the side, actually shut down all the stressors in your brain because you're, subconsciously your brain is focused on all of these threats that are coming by. Might be this tree, might be this twig, might be that rock. And the interesting thing about trail running is that happens every single stride. So I, I'm literally, I can have the most stressful day. And in the first half hour on the, or half mile on the trail, it's all gone. It's literally all gone. It just wipes it. It's like taking, you know, going to your whiteboard and just sweeping it clear. So that is what got me into this. It is my form of therapy. It's active therapy. It's quite compelling and it works. It works not just for PTSD sufferers, it works for anybody who's got psychological challenges. They can, this, this optic flow can help reset that. There's a lot of other things that happen with the breathing and all this, but the reality of the situation is why would I go do a big race like that? I, that was my third 200 plus mile race of the year. My first one, I made it 110 miles and I failed. My second one, I made 156 miles and I failed to finish. My last one, I got it done. And what I look at is do big things, challenge yourself and be willing to fail because everything I learned from the first race, I applied in the second and everything I learned in the first two races, I applied in the third and put it all together 
in one 111 hour period to finish 240 miles. But you know, the experience of being outdoors for five days, moving almost nonstop, I got, I think, a total of nine hours of sleep in five days. And, you know, experiencing the desert in a way I had never experienced the desert. Even in the military, I'd been in the desert quite a bit, but I was never out there by myself, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and being alone in the desert because I'm towards the back of the pack. I'm not one of the fast guys. So I literally was alone for almost six hours in the desert. And it was amazing. Just an amazing experience. So that's that's why I do it. How does it correlate to what I do? It's just learning to take challenge, take risks and, and challenge myself and always trying to improve myself. You know, the, tr the race is the culmination of the journey from the day you sign up for the race through all the training, all the second guessing, all the imposter syndrome saying, I probably don't belong here. Um, and all the other things that you go through to towing the line and then actually running the race and finishing it is just an amazing journey. And what's really cool about ultra running, when you do a race like that, you have a crew and you have a team of people that jump in at about 100 miles and help you. Um, they can't carry anything for you. They can't actually move for you, but they're with you. And I got to tell you, the bonds and the relationships, it's so powerful. It's really amazing. So. I'll have to take your word for it. It's not going to go up on my list. I think you and I have different <laughs> definitions of failure. If I made it like a mile, I would probably be celebrating. So that's super duper cool to hear. And Chris, it's been great, just great to spend time with you. I knew I was going to learn a few things today because you and I don't really know each other that well. No. But I've learned a ton and I know our audience will too. Um, it. You are a perfect example of Cambridge Stronger for sure. I'm honored that you took the time to spend with us today. And I just look forward to hearing more about this at our next opportunity because you've got a lot going on. Well, I really want to thank you for the time today, Amy. And one thing I just think is really important to say, I am really thrilled to be with Cambridge. And the reason I say that is because there's not a lot of broker dealers in the country where I could do these other things too. You know, um, I think what's really valuable about my relationship with Cambridge is that I have the, the freedom to build my business my way and still have the opportunity to explore these other avenues that I'm really passionate about and not, you know, be held to Geez, we need you to increase your production every year by 20% and all these other things, which maybe is valuable to somebody else who's growing their business. But I'm not at that stage in my career. I'm looking at maintaining and growing other ways. So I think that our relationship with Cambridge is very symbiotic and that the uh, um, technology platforms and things allow me to work remotely and travel and explore and do all the things that I'm really passionate about. So I want to thank you and Cambridge for what they bring to the table there. Thank you for sharing that. We like to say you control the journey, but it does my heart good to know that our Cambridge family members are out there living that dream because sure. um, we like to control our own journey so we can allow you to do what you're describing. And I'm glad that it's still working for you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Cambridge Stronger, 
I invite you to listen to my podcast episodes where I have candid conversations with genuine, inspirational financial professionals and leaders within this fiercely independent financial services industry. The best of the best, the strongest of the strongest. You can listen to my podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and the Podbean app. Stronger.